0: From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast hosted by Paul Hanley.
1: Welcome back to the China in the World podcast. My name is Paul Hanley. I'm the director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center here in Beijing, China. I'm fortunate today for our episode to be joined by two new guests to the podcast uh, on the China in the World podcast, Rudra Chaudhuri, the director of the Carnegie India Center in New Delhi, and Srinant Raghavan, senior fellow at Carnegie India. It is their first time at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center this week, and they are here for our China-India-Carnegie Global Dialogue, following up uh, on one year after the Wuhan summit between President Xi and Prime Minister Modi. For dis- today's discussions, we're going to focus on the China-India relationship, uh, what the general state of the relationship is, uh, what it looks, where it looks to be going in the future, how is it affected by U.S. policy, and what all that means for the region and the world. Thank you both very much, uh, Rudra and uh, Srinath, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Good to be here. R- Rudra, I'd like to start, uh, if I could, with you. You're a historian by training, and uh, yesterday at our panel discussion at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, uh, you know, you started out by just looking back at the history of the China-India relationship. Uh, and I think it was very helpful, at least for me, and I know many that were there to help contextualize the modern relationship, where we are today by giving a a better understanding of the historical ties between China and India and kind of the arc of the relationship to today. And I wonder if you would just start out and share with our listeners a little bit of that.
2: So Paul, thank you very much. Um, So this is really something like a cheat sheet when it comes to Mm. understanding Sino-Indian relations or contextualizing Sino-Indian relations. Um, now, both countries, as they came into their modern form and their modern being in the late 1940s, had very friendly relations through the 1950s. And then, of course, both countries got into a dispute over the border, a war in 1962. Mm. But in the contemporary period, if you want to draw something of a line into a identifiable line to define Sino-Indian relations, it really starts in the late 1980s. So 1988 to 89 is when you see a thaw in the relationship. And that's primarily jettisoned by Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi's visit to Beijing, mm. um, which is the first visit after many years. The last visit was in 19 in the mid-1950s. Mm. Um, but between the late 1980s and roughly till 2013, there is a continuity in the relationship of sorts, and broadly mm-hmm. taken, which is punctuated every couple of years or every few years by an agreement. And I think those agreement milestones are quite important to keep the dialogue motivated Mm -hmm. and at the same time to keep an institutional connection to the relationship. Mm -hmm. So key agreements include in 1993 was the first major political agreement followed by a military confidence building agreement in 1996. 2005, India and China signed something called the Political Parameters Agreement which allowed both countries to look beyond the border, look Mm -hmm. at opportunities and this is really when the economic and trade story kind of kicks off between China and India. 2012 and 2013 are the last two periods where there's not an agreement, but there is a kind of an exchange between both sides. Now mm-hmm. uh, 2013 onwards is a bit of a drop-off.
1: So from yeah. 1998 to 2013 was, it, was the general trajectory was on an incline? Was it steep incline or just a gradual? It was a gradual incline. I yeah. mean, it's not a mm-hmm. steep
2: incline. And mm-hmm. this is not to say that there weren't tension points right. um, in this time. There were tension points. There were issues with regards to the border. Mm-hmm. There were issues with regards to both sides patrolling the border. Mm-hmm. There was something like minor standoffs, for instance. But largely, there was an institutional connection yeah. between the late 1980s and 2013 yeah. when a defense cooperation agreement was signed between the two countries. Yeah. Yeah. So following that, actually, what we've seen is with Prime Minister Modi, for instance, in 2014... I think there was a sense on the Indian side that something different could be done, yeah. and something different was done for mm. the first couple of years. But for a variety of reasons, which we can perhaps get into yeah. in the podcast, mm-hmm. is something fell through the cracks in 2017, and that's when you had yourself the Doklam crisis. Yes, And I think the important question for many of us is, in order to reset the relation, and that's a term the media seems to like, but mm-hmm. it's not so much of a reset, but in terms In order to continue this relationship, I think it's important also to understand what gave way in 2017.
1: Yeah. Well, Srinath, let's pick up there. Uh, Rudra mentioned the tense standoff between India and China on the Doklam Plateau. Beijing and New Delhi managed to calm the situation. Um, And then in April of 2018, last year, the two leaders, President Xi and Modi, uh, Prime Minister Modi, met in Wuhan. Uh, and a, that's a meeting that that many characterize as a as a turning point in the relationship. But how did we how did we get to Wuhan, uh, and and what was the significance of of the Doklam crisis in that as well?
0: I think one of the underappreciated uh, points about the Wuhan summit is that the idea of some kind of an informal summit between the two top leaders was actually mooted even before the Doklam crisis happened. Mm. It has actually picked up after the crisis. So in a sense, I wouldn't necessarily see Doklam as the sole driving factor. And I, I think we need to look a little deeper mm-hmm. into what were the dynamics which led up to the feeling on both sides that we actually need to have a, a summit where the top leaders can have a free, informal, wide-ranging exchange of views and so on. So what were these issues? As, as Rudy pointed out, you know, we have a whole baggage of... Issues going back to in, in history to the sort of disputed boundary. Uh, you have uh, problems over sort of you know, economic and trade imbalances between the two sides. Uh, now there have been avenues of cooperation in other areas. But what really has changed, I think, in, in, in the more recent period is that, uh, you know, both China and India have seen an uh, increase in their economic and military capacities and power. And that in turn has led them to sort of look at issues which were once perhaps not very central to their thinking as being somewhat more more core interests, but at the same time to be a lot more assertive in the way that they defend what they think are their interests at stake in Mm -hmm. any given point of time. So, for instance, even if you take the uh, Doklam standoff itself, right, the Doklam standoff was different from every other standoff in the history of India-China relations, because it did not actually happen on the India China border. Mm. It actually happened on a ter- piece of territory which is disputed between China and Bhutan, mm. but which has implications for India because it forms the tri junction between India, China, and Bhutan. And it also has implications for Indian security because mm. that's a very sort of sensitive area from a military security point of view, mm-hmm. as far as India is concerned. So when the Chinese made an attempt to sort of, you know, push ahead and construct a road. And they were already sort of doing patrolling on foot. Mm -hmm. But once they sort of, you know, had this capacity to say, okay, we we can actually make a little bit of a push out here and assert our claims a little more strongly. You had the Indians responding by pushing their troops into that area to physically prevent the Chinese from doing that. Mm -hmm. So what you see is on both sides an attempt uh, on the part of the chinese to say that you know we take a more assertive stance which is in keeping with their broader sort of approach mm-hmm. towards these disputes in south china sea east china sea mm. and other places but surprisingly enough on the indian side and surprising to the chinese was the indian response which was seen as a lot more assertive mm-hmm. and sort of asymmetric and completely unexpected mm-hmm. but i think that is indicative yeah. of india's own growing capacities in this yeah. region yeah now, Apart from the boundary, there have been other issues which have been irritants between India and China in, in the lead-up to uh, Doklam and the Wuhan summit. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, one of the things which has been uh, particularly problematic for uh, you know, from the Indian point of view is uh, a lack of Chinese support, for instance, of India's membership in the nuclear suppliers group. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is important to India because it sort of you know, gives India a seat on an important uh, mm-hmm. club. But at the same time, it's important as a marker of status. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. this is what a rising India wants. It wants yeah. to be recognized that it's a responsible nuclear power yes. and its track record d- demands that it be given a seat. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the Chinese have been surprised at India's stance on, say, freedom of navigation mm-hmm. in the South China Seas. Now, again, this may not have been an issue 25 years ago for India. But yeah. today, so much of your trade yeah. and energy flows happens through those waters mm-hmm. that you just cannot avoid taking a stance on those issues. Yeah. So I think this is very much a, a case where you have not just the rise of China, which is a well-recognized phenomenon,
1: yeah. Yeah. but
0: also the concurrent, if somewhat, delayed rise of India.
1: Absolutely. And, and, a, and a you know surprise on the Chinese side, because of, of, because of India's rise, uh, which, as you say, is not often the focus of international attention. It's China's rise that gets all of the focus. But at the same time, India is rising as well. And as you also say, as powers rise, their interests evolve. Uh, and so you talked about that yesterday on the panel. I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, that as 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 both China and India have, have, have risen, their interests have evolved, and the scope of issues that the two countries are dealing with, they move from bilateral to regional and even global. And I wonder if you could just expound on that a little bit, how that evolution has happened and what it portends for the future of the India-China relationship. Yeah, I think that kind
0: of expansion of areas where you're coming up against each other, not just in a negative way, but even in a positive way, sure. avenues for cooperation as much as potential for competition, uh, now rests in 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 a sort of you know if you think of it as concentric circles, you know you had your bilateral issues, the boundary, uh, et cetera. But uh, look at India's neighborhood, right? I mean, what is India's principal concern about China's policy in its own neighborhood is primarily that China today has uh, greater volumes of trade with practically every neighbor of India than India has, mm. which is an uh, astonishing sort of fact given India's centrality to the South Asian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. right? And, and mm-hmm. this is an issue that uh, Indian policymakers are concerned about. Yeah. And that in part explains um, you know India's sort of reaction towards the Belt and Road Initiative Uh, You know, we have some concerns about the Pakistan angle, but we also have concerns about how China is dealing with other neighbors. You know, what are the standards and what are the parameters on which those relationships are being established? You know, are we going to find ourselves in a situation where our neighbors are suddenly sort of, you know, in in, in deep waters and we may have to sort of step in economically or otherwise to then bail them out? I mean, so those are real issues that India has to deal with because Mm -hmm. we are in that neighborhood Mm -hmm. and we cannot sort of extricate ourselves from the problems that might potentially come from Nepal or Sri Lanka or anyone else. Right. Mm -hmm. So so that's the kind of thing.
1: On that issue, I think there's actually some similarity in the American and Indian perspective. Uh, In the Asia-Pacific region, of where the U.S. has had a strong presence, uh, especially since the aftermath of World War II, we now have a dynamic where every country in the Asia-Pacific is a larger trading partner with China than it is with the United States. And we've had a similar um, reaction uh, to the Belt and Road, concerns about the same set of standards, uh, transparency, uh, sustainability... Same set of issues. So there's a there's an interesting, I think, corollary between India and the United States in this
0: regard. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the other reason why India, you know, for instance, has emphasized this whole question of environmental sustainability and so on, because, you know, South Asia is politically fragmented, but ecologically, it's one unit
1: Mm -hmm. and its
0: ecological sort of future either hangs or falls together. Mm-hmm. And we are absolutely conscious of that. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and in some ways, even China is part of that story, right? So so therefore, you're very concerned about, you know, what could be potential ecological environmental consequences of these things if it's going to lead to various kinds of migratory outflows. You know, where are people going to come? They're going to come to India. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are the, you know, 800-pound gorilla sitting out there. This is the largest economy. Yeah. This is the place where maximum inward migration within the subcontinent happens. Yeah. So I think these are definitely issues uh, which we are concerned about, about the medium and longer term implications mm-hmm. of our Chinese presence in our sort of periphery, so to speak.
1: Rudra, yesterday on our panel, uh, you talked about issues where you saw challenges between China and India, but they also represent opportunities. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those going forward in the relationship.
2: So, Srinath uh, touched upon the BRI right. and Indian concerns around the BRI. And I think. You know, on both sides, there needs to be a lot more thinking about what the BRI means—not in general, but to the Sino-Indian relationship. Mm-hmm. So, if you take the BRI into two parts, for instance, one part is, of course, this large one called CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And then I think I should just say, as I mentioned in the panel yesterday, is that CPEC for India is a complete kind of no-go area. Right? There is no way in which India is going to be convinced, at least at this point of time, or any point of time, really to kind of buy into Chinese investments or China's push in what is essentially disputed territory. Mm -hmm. And these arguments go back a long way. They go Mm -hmm. back to the early 1960s. So these are not new arguments and no one in China should be surprised by these arguments. Mm -hmm. Having said that, on the BRI in its sense, I think there are two key points that are important. One is a lot of Indian criticism of the BRI, I think, has been understood on the Chinese side as nationalism in a sense. And it's also been under, understood as proactively being anti-Chinese.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But if you take a step back and look at what those criticisms are, in actual fact, the first set of statements made by India in 2017, after the first Belt and Road Forum, mm-hmm. in fact, mimicked a lot of, lot of the language that was also in the EU statement, mm-hmm. for instance, mm-hmm. where India picked on exactly the issues that Sheena talked about on environment, sustainability, transparency, the importance of multilateralism Mm -hmm. to have complete openness when it comes to contracts and open bidding system, for Mm -hmm. instance. Mm -hmm. So I think in terms of standards, the BRI needs to get to a place where India can start appreciating an open and free system before it even considers at some level down the line, many years down the line, joining the system. Mm-hmm. But underneath that, there is a lot that can be done. Mm-hmm. right? So if we just take the BRI label and the BRI branding out of the picture, for instance, mm-hmm. I think in my own sense would be that India would welcome Chinese investments inside of India. There is a dire need for infrastructural support inside of India. Mm-hmm. Um, India appreciates, I think, Chinese technology, its ability to build large infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So there, I think in a sense... It's not that you're knocking on an open door, but I think a door could be opened yeah. if you do knock. But the way you position this is going to be very important.
1: But to the Chinese, this seems to be a very important piece. The countries politically signing on uh, and 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 recognizing this significant uh, Chinese initiative. Yet we heard yesterday on the panel, uh, you know, very strong argument that I hear repeated in China, even by government officials um, They say this Belt and Road is an initiative. It is not a strategy. And I think there they're trying to downplay any idea that this is a Chinese secret idea to expand strategic influence of China across the globe. Uh, So they say very strongly this is an initiative, not a strategy. But they also say this is about infrastructure and connectivity. It has nothing to do with politics or geopolitics. And this argument, uh, you know, on one hand it sounds good. On the other hand, I don't get the idea that that is the case. Because if it was the case, then, of course, Ruja, your point, let's just collaborate on infrastructure, either in India or in a third country. Um, that would be fine. And then it might not matter whether India comes to the Belt and Road Forum or the U.S. comes to the Belt and Road Forum. But I suspect that it is more about politics than they're, than they're insisting uh, that it is not. Uh, and I think that In this regard, if they can move away from that, I think there's plenty of opportunities. And I understand this was an issue that was brought up uh, in the Wuhan summit between the two leaders. I wanted to also get a sense from you how your reaction to President Xi's speech at the Belt and Road Forum on the areas that you mentioned of sustainability, uh, debt issues, uh, standards issues. There was some response to that, it seemed to me.
2: So it's interesting, you know, Paul, if you take uh, President Xi's statement and you remove the heading which said BRF, the Belt and Road Forum, if you just look at the statement on its merits, yes, actually you could take that statement in the way that he is responding to a lot of the criticisms Mm -hmm. that have not just been made about the BRI, but I think in terms of the Chinese economy and China's economic build-out, Mm -hmm. not only in Asia, but also in the kind of larger Afro-Eurasian space. Mm -hmm. So just look at all the subheadings in that speech, for instance. It's about sustainability, it's about environment, and it's about market access. So at some level, I think the... About whether or not China's open to foreign
1: competition here in China.
2: Not only foreign competition, but fair and foreign competition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's China's. So there seems to be an indication, at least rhetorically, yeah. that China's open for business in a way that does not necessarily privilege Chinese companies. Mm-hmm. That's been a key concern for countries like India, especially in the pharma sector, mm-hmm. in the technology sector, for instance... You know, Carnegie India does a lot of work down in Bangalore, for instance, on technology. And a lot of our entrepreneurs, startups, VC, that crowd will tell you it's just very hard to invest in China and get your buck for your bank, right? Yes. So, but the fact that he's even kind of labeled this out, I think is encouraging. But I think we're going to have to see how this actually works out operationally.
1: Right. Right. And I wonder why he decided, as you say, to talk about some of these uh, structural issues around China's economy in particular. Uh, market access, uh, strengthening protections on intellectual property, um, reductions in the negative list of uh, what countries can invest in in China. My own uh, suspicion is that uh, these were elements or are elements that are going to be part of the U.S.-China trade deal and that President Xi may not have wanted to announce them for the first time while he's sitting next to President Trump because it might look like he's caved to pressure demands from Trump. Instead, he puts it part and parcel of a Chinese initiative. Not only is it Chinese initiative, it is President Xi Jinping's personal flagship international initiative, the Belt and Road. And in this context, he can say, we're making these decisions, we're opening our markets, we're making improvements in intellectual property because it's important for the success of the Belt and Road Forum as opposed to caving into U.S. demands. But I'm not sure. That's just my uh, sense.
2: Well, one can only hope that, you know, a lot of international diplomacy and international history is about capitalizing on opportunities exactly like this. Yeah. So while his statement may serve as a proxy... Um, for actually Sino-US relations. Yes. But let's just hope that the proxy can be used in a way that works for everybody down the line Absolutely. when it comes to the question of standards. Absolutely. And if you look at a lot of the Chinese rhetoric around the AIIB, for instance, back in the day, used to be around these kind of questions. It was the rhetoric that got ahead of the institution. Yes. Then the institution caught up. And then countries like India
1: said, we can work with the AIIB. You know, and, and in that context, I often say that if, President Trump and the Trump administration is successful on this trade deal, other countries in the world will benefit if China makes the decisions to move forward on the reforms of its economy that it announced in in 2013. In addition to the Belt and Road, um, what are some of the other areas where there's challenges and opportunities? Maybe, Rudra, you get your view, and also Srinath.
2: So one of the areas, um, you know, where I think that there is a, which is a challenge, but there is plenty of opportunity, but is to come back to the fundamental issue of the border. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is that is the kind of central fundamental issue between the two countries Mm -hmm. and has been so from at least the mid 1950s all the way till the present day. Um, There's a new government. There will be a new government in India at the end of May. Um, I think alongside the new government, we can ride the kind of Wuhan spirit, if you like, right? So both the relations between India and China have stabilized largely following Wuhan. So if leaders from both sides can capitalize on this new drift in this mm-hmm. positive sense to kind of at least get what is known as the SR process, which is the special representative process back online mm-hmm. to discuss what is potentially possible on the border. Yeah. And this is not going to be easy right? because there are domestic equities on both sides. There are also constitutional equities on the Indian side.
0: Mm.
2: To get into an agreement, I think that is the far side of that line, for instance. An agreement would require cons- parliamentary approval on the Indian side, which is very hard to imagine. Yeah. But it, But there's a lot that can be done below that end in terms of confidence building, in terms of identification of the border in itself, which has not been identified by both sides till today. Yeah. So there is space for maneuver, but I think that needs to be addressed. And that is an opportunity that can be capitalized.
1: Working towards the long run, but also in the short term, making sure that you reduce, reduce the chances of miscalculation or some sort of incident.
2: Absolutely. And as Sinat said, as you know, the economies of India and China have boomed, Mm. Um, interests have boomed, Indian capabilities on the border will boom. Mm. Um, And to make sure that in the future, that you don't have misunderstanding on the border, which can then lead to standoffs um, is, you know, you want to kind of mitigate those risks as far as possible. And that can only happen if you come back to the table, reconstitute the SR process in a meaningful way and get that discussion going.
1: I want to come to the US factor in a second but before we do Srinath I want to get a sense from you what additional uh, challenges opportunities you see in the in the China India bilateral relationship
0: well I think the one issue which was discussed at Wuhan and which also came up in some of the other discussions we've had over the last two days uh, is people to people contact mm-hmm. uh, and I think uh, both the leaders uh, kind of agreed uh, almost up front that you know, the the lack of sort of understanding of each other's, uh, despite being both Asian countries, neighbors, uh, and so on, is actually quite a striking phenomenon. Mm. And, uh, you know, as as, a student of sort of India-China relations, uh, it's striking to me that, you know, back in the day when both were new countries, which came into existence in the late 1940s, I think, despite the significant disparity in terms of the political systems, there was a willingness to sort of learn from each other and understand what is it that they were experimenting. For instance, in agriculture, there were teams which used to come from India to see what were the Chinese trying to do on the commune system, right? Mm-hmm. You couldn't do that in India. But, mm-hmm. you know, is there something to be learned? Yeah. Vice versa. You know, the other thing which uh, is striking is, you know, India was one of the pioneers in this uh, random sampling techniques, uh, you know, which were pioneered by the Indian Planning Commission. So there were statistical exchanges between China and India in the yeah. early 1950s. You know, mm-hmm. so you were trying to understand how, you know, I think, I think a lot of that learning and willingness yeah. to sort of look into each other's system, acknowledge disparities, but still say, is there things... Are there things that we can learn? Yeah, I think that's gone. And I think yeah. that's one thing which is uh, definitely seems to be uh, of interest to both sides to revive. Yeah. We do have a significant uh, sort of sizable population of Indian students here in China uh, studying. I think yeah. two-way exchanges uh, will improve. There has to be much greater sort of communication between business communities, entrepreneurs. Tourism people. as well. Tourism as yeah. well, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I think at least on the Indian side, I would say... And emphasis on sort of understanding Chinese history and language, I think, yeah. could be another area where, you know, government scholarships, opportunities to come. And um, so not just in the think tank space where anyway, yeah. people like us are kind of interested. We
1: heard, I thought we heard a couple of interesting things at our breakfast this morning that I thought were fascinating. One is that after the Wuhan summit, the uh, amount of Indian movies that would, Bollywood movies that would come into China had gone up. And many of the movies that are not very well liked in India are very much liked here in China. I thought that was really interesting. And they, there's sort of a following of those, of those movies. So from the cultural standpoint, that's something. But also we heard from a tech entrepreneur who is an American Chinese that uh, the American understanding of China is much better than the Chinese understanding. I'm sorry, the American understanding of India is much better than the Chinese understanding of India. And because he is a, an American who runs a Chinese company, he was able to really get a lot moving in India. But he said his Chinese tech counterparts just don't know India and they don't understand it and they don't have the experience. And there's really something that needs to be built there.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, both India and China in their sort of respective relations with the United States have benefited enormously from the fact that, you know, there are sort of communities, uh, not just of people who have gone and studied, but actually lived acquired citizenship. You know, there's a Chinese American community. There's an Indian American community both of which have done extraordinarily well in the United States. And that, I think, adds ballast to a bilateral relationship. And that's exactly the kind of medium to long-term thing that I think you know, both countries need to be working on. So, yes, we work on harder issues like the border. We try and sort of sort out the economic um, questions. We try and see how we can cooperate with each other on the periphery or at least not walk on mm-hmm. each other's toes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but I think this kind of uh, you know building longer-term equities between people and societies it's going to be very important if you want to have a stable, predictable relationship going forward.
1: And Rujia, the Carnegie India Center, uh, in terms of its technology program, is quite strong. Mm-hmm. Is this an area that can help in this effort between China and India and sort of building this, uh, you know, these connections between entrepreneurs in China and uh, India? So I'll come to the technology part in a second, but just to follow on from
2: what Srinath was saying, I think we as think tanks have to learn to respond to some of the larger questions that matter to not just diplomacy, but just to people-to-people relations. Mm-hmm. And I think as think tanks, we have to reach different audiences, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, this morning at the breakfast that you hosted for us, Paul, the panel yesterday, people-to-people contacts is important and it has to happen organically. It can't come top down. Right. Eventually, you're going to need a whole bunch of Chinese students, entrepreneurs working in India and vice versa. We're going to build connections. We're going to build business interests. We're going to build organizations together. Mm. And I think as, as a think tank level, perhaps this is something that we need to be doing more at Carnegie. And perhaps the advantage over here is that we, we want the only think tank that has an effective center in Beijing, an effective center in Delhi, right. and that's the bridge that we can kind of build. Absolutely. On the technology part, absolutely. is Carnegie India hosts a signature event in December every year. It's called the Global Technology Summit. And that's the terminology. It's the Global Technology Summit. Um, this year, our kind of, you know, going theme is the future of data. That's going to be important for Chinese entrepreneurs. It's going to be important for American venture capitalists. It's going to be important for a whole range of actors in India. If we can turn the GTS or the Global Technology Summit into a platform where you get a better understanding of Chinese technologies, Chinese innovations, perhaps we can start to dispel or disabuse some of the kind of commonly held notions, which is more competitive mm. in this field, and look at what are the kind of net cooperative mechanisms that can be kind of built, which benefit Indian companies and also benefit Chinese firms. Absolutely,
1: as we as we come to the the end of our our podcast here, I, I do want to discuss the U.S. element and the, the the Trump's America First policies. You know, President Trump recently dubbed India the tariff king in a tweet uh, in April um, and said that. Uh, it would terminate India's status as a developing country under the. US GAT uh, G- generalized System of Preferences GSP program. Um, you know, this may be indic- indic- indicative of a more contentious relationship ahead for India and the United States. Um, but there's obviously some pressure from the Trump administration. I, my My hypothesis is that this new approach by the Trump administration has, in some ways uh, contributed to the environment that allowed for the Wuhan summit mm-hmm. um, you know in that we have seen China as it the tensions between China and the United States uh, have gone up, especially over the last year with this trade war. China has worked to improve relations around the world in Southeast Asia. Uh, and other parts of the world, and uh, including India. And so I wanted to get a sense from, from you, and I'll start, uh, Srinath, with you. How much of a factor do you think that is? Well,
0: the United States is an important factor in India-China relations, and not just now, but has been for a while. Mm. Uh, and if I take a sort of longer historical perspective on India-China relations it's never been the case that India-China relations have been purely bilateral. Uh, mm. I mean, back in the day, for instance, the Soviet Union stance used to matter a hell of a lot mm. for what the state of play between India and China was, yeah. and, and then the United States in, in more recent times. Uh, as far as uh, India is concerned, uh, you know, particularly as you mentioned in, in, in the run-up to Wuhan, uh, the fact that uh, the Trump administration was set on a tough course of economic negotiations with the sort of tariffs being slapped onto China, uh, coming on board obviously created a certain kind of a platform and and i think the chinese reciprocated uh that feeling so you know the kind of formulation that you've seen uh since uh, all of this took off is that you know in a highly unpredictable world uh, india china relation should be a factor for predictability yeah that's the kind of formulation mm-hmm. both sides have used and when you say unpredictable world we all know what the factor of unpredictability there is mm-hmm. so i think that is definitely uh, an important thing now to uh now is that does that sort of it, it creates an enabling environment for India and China to talk together. Mm-hmm. But I think if you want to be able to do serious progress on various kinds of issues, then yes, we have to see uh, a lot of bilateral things improve. But yeah. as this discussion has already brought out, you know some of the things that, say, the United States wants by way of reforms in, in the Chinese sort of economic system... Could obviously end up benefiting countries like yeah. India as well because they align with broader international sort of communities' objectives, right? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, India doesn't have the clout to be able to deal with China in in that way at all. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, you'd stand to benefit from some of those turn of events.
1: And and in that regard, I think the U.S. and India share a lot of common concern uh, with regard to issues related to China. We've talked about the economic and trade issues, the market access issues. Talked about the Belt and Road. There are a number of issues where we share common concerns. Indo Pacific, I mean, Indo Pacific is exactly. Um, uh, Rudra, for my final question would be as even we have uh, common concerns in many cases with India, but our approaches seem to be a little different when dealing with China. And I wonder if you could, how would you characterize the similarities and differences in the approaches? that India has taken in dealing with China, and that the United States, especially now under the Trump administration, is taking dealing with China? So I think the first, um, I think the first point there is, I think there is a
2: sense in India that, and I think the term opportunity would be perhaps a bit too harsh, mm-hmm. but there is space for India on the relationship with China, primarily because of the unpredictabilities mm-hmm. with the relationship between the US and China at the moment. Um, when we came to Beijing this week, on the first day I read the papers, it looked like China and the United States were close to something of a deal. Yeah. 24 hours later, we <laughs> did a whole bunch of tweets by President Trump, right. which I think has dashed that for the time being. But I think those are exactly the kind of wedges that not only the Indians will look to capitalize on, but my own sense actually is that the Chinese will look to capitalize on. Mm. Is stability in that relationship in itself. But having said that and you know, taking a longer view... Yeah. The Indian position vis a vis China has more or less been a kind of bilateral one, shaped by the imperatives of its own position on China in itself. So, my sense is that as much as um, many quarters would argue that India is pushed on China by country X or country Y, actually, on some of the fundamental issues, I think India's position towards China is primarily driven. By its own interests and its own needs mm-hmm. and I think for a country like India that's that's very healthy and that's mm-hmm. also representative of the size of India of the growth of India um, and I think net net it is the two countries that are going to have to figure out bilaterally yeah. a lot of these long-standing issues and capitalize on the many opportunities that we've discussed in the podcast today
1: and the Wuhan summit it seems to me my own interpretation of what came out of that was and you hear this phrase the Wuhan spirit the spirit of the Wuhan summit is that despite the fact that India and China have significant challenges, and we've talked about many of them, including the border, which is uh, potentially a a big issue, Um, India and China want to find practical ways to work together in areas where there's common interest uh, or common efforts are possible. Uh, It's a much more pragmatic approach, it seems to me, um, that we may have seen in the past. And in comparing it and answering my own question about the U.S. approach, I think we have moved away from that pragmatism in the United States approach. I see a much more emotional uh, and confrontational approach, frankly, from from the United States across a range of uh, issues. And yes, we have, you know, as China has uh, rises, uh, there are a number of areas where. Uh, The view is China is taking steps to undermine U.S. interests and other interests of other international actors. And I think that a much stronger uh, approach is required. But the Indian approach is pragmatic and says we're going to deal uh, in a head-on way with the issues where we have challenges, but we're also going to try to find a way to work together where we have common interests. And I think that's, in the long term, I think that's an effective approach. So uh, thank you, both of you, for joining us on the China and the World podcast. I thought it was a fascinating conversation. It's been great to have you both here this week, and we hope you come back to the Carnegie Tsinghua Center and join the podcast again in the future.
2: Thank you very much, and we look forward to hosting you in New Delhi sometime soon. Look forward as well.
1: Thank you. Thank you for joining the China and the World podcast. Be sure to check out more content from the Carnegie Tsinghua Center on our website.